This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 134 of the iFreaks show. Today on our panel, we have Andrew Manson. Hello from Salt Lake City. Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. And I'm James Zuber. And today, our, as our guests, we have David Morrow and Kevin Lord. Do you guys want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm David Morrow. I am a lead iOS developer at BuzzFeed, and I'm currently focused on the BuzzFeed News app. My name is Kevin Lord. I am in St. Kitts in the Caribbean right now while my wife attends vet school out here. And uh, I also am at BuzzFeed, and um, I do iOS development architecture type stuff. I'm kind of focusing a lot on our frameworks. In various libraries. I think I speak for every person in the Northern Hemisphere right now. It's December, and we all hate you. <laughs> it's, it's true. Oh, yeah. It's like 85 and sunny and humid every day here. Do you have a parrot? I do not have a parrot, all right, but I do have monkeys in my backyard. That's good enough. We'll take that. So we've brought you on to talk about Mattress. Can you tell us what Mattress is? Yeah. Mattress is a framework for iOS designed to cache entire web pages for offline consumption, as well as speeding up uh, the downloading of pages uh, through like normal online use. And um, its main design is it has two caches, so that the offline cache is distinct from your standard NRS URL cache, so that it won't be overwritten uh, through normal usage of the web view. And that's about it. So you're caching just a web page. Yeah, that type of stuff. Yes, the idea for this came about when I was asked, hey, we have these bookmarks in the BuzzFeed app, and we want to have the favorites available offline. And then the real we don't have native content in the BuzzFeed app or, or didn't at the time. And so that meant keeping entire articles that are designed, you know, in a, in a web view, making those available for offline use, which as you can imagine is actually like a little more complicated than it can seem at first glance because you're needing to store, you know, between dozens and or hundreds of requests all like cache to disk. It's also a little more complicated than kind of just loading a page because on a lot of sites, including BuzzFeed, uh, assets are loaded kind of on the fly. So as the user scrolls down the web page, uh, images will be loaded and other embeds and things like that will be loaded, but they're not loaded until the user actually actually scrolls down. And so it takes a little more work to handle things like that also. Yeah, just knowing when a web page is done downloading is like a very big question. <laughs> it's very loaded and like um, they're sort of like, oh, I know when a web page is done, like as soon as I can see above the fold. But, you know, from a developer perspective in terms of like, you know, what do we need to do to make this web page available for a reasonable use for offline consumption? A lot goes into that. And for instance, like if there's a video embed on the page, that's probably not going to be, you know, that's out of the purview of, of Mattress and something like that is not going to be available. 
but something like lazy loading images, for instance, Mattress offers a sort of flexible delegate pattern that allows the user of the framework to determine when a page is done downloading content. So if you wanted those lazy loaded images to be downloaded with a page, you could make that happen on your own. So what are the elements are configurable like that, like HTML, your JavaScript, things like that? Well, what we do is every time a did finish load on the WebView delegate is called, we kind of hand that off to the uh, delegate of the mattress cache. And so we say, hey, this web view that you wanted is saying it's finished loading. Just let us know if you actually think it's done or not. So the user can run JavaScript. They can check the DOM state, uh, like, you know, the interactive state or if it's like complete. And they just kind of return a Boolean of whether they whether the user thinks it's done or not. Cool. So if we're talking about caching a web page in our app, that seems a little bit like like Voodoo. How how is this how is this yeah. built? How can we use this? So the way it's built is it uses uh, UI WebView to actually download the page because if you think we're we're starting from a URL, right? We we supply a URL and we say this is the URL of a web page we want downloaded, and the WebView is used to essentially like find all of the requests that are needed because that's what a UI web view does really well already is it it's just like you give it a request and it parses that HTML at that endpoint finds all of the JavaScript there the CSS it you know runs the JavaScript and that might have more requests embedded within it and so all of those requests that are made are going to get picked up as they pass through the NSURL protocol and so what we can do is hook into that and see all of those requests coming and we can essentially identify them, which the this is what the framework is doing kind of behind the scenes is identify each of those requests and associate them with that initial request so that we know where they need to be stored or how they should be saved. And so how to use it would be you, you need to use a UI web view, which because unfortunately WK web view doesn't use the NSURL cache uh, or NSURL protocol. Um, it kind of has its own caching and protocol system that just does not hook into the standard system stuff. And so using UI WebView, you would just simply, first you would tell the framework to cache a page. So you just say, hey, Mattress, create a cache for me. And then that's going to be my shared cache. And then I'm going to tell you, you know, load this page and you'll let me know when it's done. And then later, whenever you're ready, you can just simply load that URL in a web view. And if you're offline, it will be loaded for you. So that's cool. That's a pretty cool functionality that's difficult yeah. to build in your own app. So it's nice to have a, a framework that does this. Yeah, it's kind I mean, of dark magic a little bit. <laughs> I'm curious to learn a, a little more about how you how you actually implemented this. Um, I've kind of read through the code. And I noticed that you subclass NSURL cache. And the first question that came to mind, I've never really seen this done before. It's not something I've explored very much either, though. And I, I wonder if this is really um, something Apple designed the API for, or did it just end up working out nicely so you could do this? So in other words, <laughs> are, are you guys kind of the first to actually do this? or? I don't know for the first. Kevin, do you know, has anyone else done anything like this that you've seen before? Because I don't think I have. Uh, no, not that I can think of. I mean, I think most stuff kind of just relies on using the built-in NSURL cache. Yeah, I can't think of any, any other frameworks or libraries that have subclassed it. 
but it, it's funny that you say that this worked out nicely because it, it didn't at all, really. I don't believe it is designed to be subclassed. Well, subclassing doesn't run into so many issues, but the big problem that you run into with NSURL cache is the way it's designed is they say, you know, there's this global singleton URL cache that you're supposed to create a URL, NSURL cache and assign to. But in reality, any time you create a URL cache, it confuses the whole system and it like seems to use that. So like say you create two caches because the you know the idea for mattress is you have your standard URL cache and then you have your distinct mattress cache. Mm-hmm. The mattress offline cache is not an NS URL cache because if you create two of them, they actually start running into each other. So it, it's very clearly like not designed to do what we set out to do. And the way that was solved was just create our own disk caching system, which the offline cache uses. And that's not, it doesn't do what NSURL cache does where it offers both memory and disk cache. It's only a disk cache, but that actually makes the most sense for our use case, both you know for loading content faster and uh, loading it for offline uses. You're probably gonna be running this in you know some other time later on and you don't wanna you know, memory cache will not get you much. So the subclass URL cache is really just used to kind of override some stuff to kind of point requests and such in the right direction. And then mostly just passes off its functionality into the superclass or into mattresses disk cache, depending on where it should go or come from. So I thought that was cool because that being able to subclass NSURL cache gave you a way to hook into to UI WebView, you know, without yeah. without doing anything special with UI WebView itself, right? You can just yep. use it like you normally do. Yeah, exactly. And th- th- that's what's really cool about it is like, ex- like you said, you, you use UI WebView like you normally would. And because UI WebView is designed uh, in this like cool way that it, it uses NSURL cache and NSURL protocol, we can kind of get behind the scenes and say like, oh, actually you want this request from disk, which is, you know, again, what WK WebView does not do which is we hate WK WebView now. I'd like to talk a little about that. I, we actually shipped an app today at, at work that uses WK WebView on the Mac, but we started out using WebView, which is the old, you know, the old WebView on the Mac. And and I basically have the same opinion of WK WebView that you seem to have probably for different reasons, but can you talk a little bit about the details of why you, you know, why WK WebView doesn't work and you and you have to use UI WebView here? Yeah, I mean, Kevin, if you want to talk about this, I know you probably know even more about this than I do, I think. Yeah, sure. So I feel like WK WebView has a whole lot of promise. And like when it came out, everyone was super excited about it. Um, I mean, mainly for the performance increases and stuff with the JavaScript engine. But then like when you start using it, it's definitely not as flexible and configurable as UI WebView is. Um, There's like a number of different things where it just kind of doesn't use the built-in subsystems that UI WebView does. So there's a few different things like cookies. I believe it has its own cookie cache, which is like kind of separate from the shared cookie cache. Um, For a long time, you weren't able to load local files. I think they solved that in iOS 9. We don't really do that, like try to load local files directly. So 
Uh, I'm not positive, but I think that part's been solved. And then the main thing that caused us problems is that it also doesn't hook into the NSURL protocol subsystem. And so UI WebView, you can just register your own um, NSURL protocol handler class, and it will check with that class to see if it can load any requests that come through the WebView. However, WK WebView pretty much just ignores that and does its own thing. I think there's probably some good reasons why it's like that behind the scenes architecture-wise since it's it's pretty different and runs in its own process and things like that, but it does make it a lot more limited. I, I think it being limited for that, like because of those subsystems, also kind of now with uh, Safari, the Safari View controller, I, I think the WK WebView like, use case is significantly smaller now because if you just need to present a WebView, you know, and you, you kind of want to be hands-off about it, Safari View Controller is going to be the way to go. And if as soon as you need to get at all more complicated and hook into these subsystems to do anything special with the requests coming through, you're going to need to use UI WebView. So WK WebView is now in this sort of no man's land of like, when are you going to use this, really? Yeah, I, I mean, that's basically our problem. It, it seems like if you want it, it, the reason to use WK WebView or UI WebView is because you're doing something more sophisticated than just showing a web page. In our case, where it's a, it's sort of a hybrid web app, native app like Slack or something where the UI is implemented in on the web, and but we need to hook into that. And we had that same problem with WK WebView having its own cookie storage. And, and then the other big issue for us is that the JavaScript bridge for WK WebView is pretty lousy compared to WebView. It's asynchronous and just not nearly as nice as the JavaScript core bridge for WebView. But oh well. I, I also am disappointed that they announced WK WebView like it was the future. Everybody got excited about it. And then it seems like they've done very little with it in the you know year and a half or whatever since it came out. Yeah, this is probably a good time to give a shout out to the twitter.com slash WK WebView parody account, which is somebody tweeting on behalf of WK WebView commenting on like basically how hobbled its functionality is. It's pretty great. It's a it's a good like like if you're getting upset with WK WebView not doing what you want it to, it's like kind of a good relief to go just like read that Twitter account. Yeah, WK WebView also caused a pretty huge crash in the BuzzFeed app also. <laughs> we we switched over to using WK WebView for loading the articles. And apparently there was this bug where um, when you were, let's see, it was if um, you were trying to run JavaScript. So we run JavaScript in various different places to like kick off like a tracking call within the WebView or something like that. And if you like kick off a JavaScript, something that's like running JavaScript, and then the web view is released, it just crashes. <laughs> and so that was causing like a, I don't know, something like a 10% crash rate in the app at one point because that bug. And so that was definitely not fun either. So I'm curious about the NS URL protocol, you know, the whole subsystem. So essentially, you can just create your own class that implements the NS URL protocol and when you add it to the cache, you can intercept any requests that, that come through. Is that, that how it works? Yeah. Yeah, so you, you create an NSURL protocol, and essentially, like, any that you, you know, announce to the subsystem, it will call, it'll, anytime a request comes through that, you know, for someone who uses the subsystem, like UI WebView, it'll say, hey, can you use this request? And you just, you know, let it know whether or not you can. So, for instance, in Mattress, our uh, mattress URL protocol, 
looks for keys that it has assigned to requests based on, you know, like whether we're offline or whether we recognize this as like a request that we've associated with a request that the user kicked off um, to store it offline. And if you don't handle it, you just say no. And it essentially just kind of like goes through, you know, all of the protocols that have uh, like registered with the system. And we'll like just keep looking for one that says, hey, I'll handle this for you. But it seems to me that with this, this is very powerful, but you're also getting requests from like the entire app, third-party components, that type of thing. So, you, I mean, it seems very easy to just mess things up in a, a very insane <laughs> yeah. way. It- that's that's a good point. It's, it is like you, you need to be pretty strict about what I, – I think that the kind of default is like assume you can't handle a request, and if you say you can handle it, just make absolutely sure that you can. So for requests that we do handle – there's like a lot of logic before them. You know, it's like, is this, you know, like obviously it's like, is this HTTP or HTTPS? Because that's all we're concerned with. And that's like the first level check. And then it's, do we actually have a cache like that we're expecting, you know, like essentially has the user actually turned on mattress? And then we, you know, check that there is a cached response for that request or that there is a... um web view cacher as we as we call it that is in charge of that request and so those checks then have like a lot of logic in them so it's it's pretty like aggressively checking against a lot of different things to make sure we're sure we want to handle that request before we say we will okay so when you're creating your web request how do you indicate to mattress that this is something that you want the protocol to handle so the way that you that this is used is the user will kick things off first by telling the mattress URL cache, hey, I have this URL I want you to to download. And so in turn, uh, mattress will create a web view cacher. And that's essentially just a web view delegate. And it it owns a web view and it is the delegate for the web view. And when it makes these requests, it will use kind of a combination of main document of like its main document URL. So essentially when you kick off that request, that becomes the main document URL. And that's how it kind of identifies other requests is coming through. And then additionally, the initial request has a key added to the request in the header. So what we do, for instance, is the WebView cacher has this mutable request for request method. And all of the requests that are relevant are going to get passed through here. And it's just adding, it's just calling NSURL protocol set property true for key mattress cache request property key. And so that's just like adding this identifier to the request that says, hey, I'm part of this like offline caching system and I need my request to go into the offline cache instead of the standard cache. And also any requests that come through now, I am going to, you know, they'll they'll check in with every WebView cacher and then this WebView cacher knows how to identify requests is relevant to it based on the main document URL. So it's it's a little convoluted, but it, it all kind of works out actually uh, a bit more cleanly, I think, than it sounds when describing. But um, yeah, it's actually worked out really well and is, seems to be pretty safe in terms of I haven't ever noticed any like crosstalk between WebView cachers or anything. In the news app, for instance, I think we're running four different web, WebView cachers at once when we uh, background cache web pages. Okay, so you, you create the request through the web cacher, which handles any setting of, of the header, 
And when you use it, you just use a you know the UI web view. Right. Okay. So your your view code really doesn't have any difference if they're using mattress or not. It's all handled upstream. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So when they load that URL that they previously cached, when they load that in mattress, if they're offline, the URL protocol will say there's actually a delegate method that asks the app, "Are you offline?" So if the you know to just to make it simpler to identify whether or not we're offline, because that can be sort of a complicated question in and of itself. So you you tell it you're offline. And then when Mattress gets a request, it'll see that it's offline, and it will just immediately know to only bother checking this disk cache, to, well, to start by checking the disk cache that's offline. And if it didn't have that in there, it's just going to go through the standard methods. So if you're online or if you're offline, it's going to eventually fall back to the standard NSURL cache that it would have been using anyways. So this is just sort of a, you know, kind of kind of like we, we sneak in the middle there and if we need to, we hop in and pull stuff out of the disk cache and supply it. But otherwise, you know, we don't necessarily need to be there. If it's if it's a request that that we haven't cached before, you know, mattress will essentially be doing nothing, even though you know the user in their app is simply just loading a NSURL in a web view. One thing that I'm curious about. Sorry, I I'm coming in a little bit late, but uh, anyway, um, my my question is, can you use this system? You're talking about using it with uh, WK Web Views and things like that. Can you use it with things like NativeScript or React Native or some of these other systems that operate partially or completely in a WK Web View and use JavaScript to do a lot of the calls and things like that? Or do those uh, URL calls go through a completely different system? That's a good question. Kevin, do you know anything about that, about those systems? Uh, no, I have no idea. Um, I've never really used any of those frameworks. I will say that if they're using WK WebView, then uh, it definitely won't work. If they can work within a UI WebView, then potentially, but I'm not totally clear on what the mattress benefit would be and like how that would hook in. Yeah, I, I think it's essentially, it's up to the framework uh, really to whether or not they would be hooking into this because essentially they if they hook into the standard like NSURL protocol and NSURL cache system, then it will work with Mattress. If they don't, then it, Mattress would just never see the requests. All right, that makes sense. Are there any performance implications here? Things that we would want to worry about if we're, if we're trying to cache an, an, an unusual number of uh, resources there? Yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a great question because obviously we're using UI WebView. So, you know, being UI kit, we need to run this on the main thread. So, we haven't really dug into this. I've tested it, you know, and develop builds and stuff and run multiple of these at a time while scrolling through a collection view. And it seems to perform okay. But, you know, we're using a web view to load these in. And even though the web view is hidden, it's probably doing a lot of rendering type stuff on the main thread that, you know, we would cause performance issues. Um, so for now, in our use in the BuzzFeed News app, we only ever run this in the background fetch process. So if you have background fetch turned off, we actually won't be, you know, you won't get to leverage mattress. And that's something we want to explore is like how much, you know, foreground usage of mattress can we get away with? And like, you know, to, to sort of like aggressively preload just when the user's running the app, if they kind of opt into that. I think it was, I think Kevin was the one that was Kevin and maybe, maybe even Jame actually, uh, you know, we're, we're really good to kind of rein me in when I was like, oh, I think this, this seems to work really good on the, 
in the foreground and i think uh, both of them were kind of like yeah let's like take it easy with that because it could be a <laughs> lot worse than it appears at first glance because you know it's it's potentially like a lot of work yeah i mean i think a decent amount of it probably does occur on other threads like i think um like the javascript um, engine runs on other threads and i'm sure a good chunk of the work is done like on threads other than main but i'd imagine that there's still like a decent amount that's done on main and i definitely at least like if you're going to try caching things in the foreground run it through instruments like see if it works for what you're going to do yeah because i mean it's definitely something to look out for yeah if anyone is interested in like using mattress and you know has a use case for using it in the foreground of the app and not just background fetch i'd you know, we'd love to hear about it. We haven't yet dug into, you know, doing that instrumentation and, and checking it out, but I think it, it would be really nice to do. You know, one of the downsides to this, obviously, and I think part of the reason we do this only on background fetch isn't just the performance, but also, I mean, also performance related, but not, you know, CPU time, but rather the amount of data that is downloaded. Some of these web pages can be very large. A lot of web pages don't do mobile friendly images. And in the BuzzFeed News app, for instance, we're not just loading BuzzFeed pages. So sometimes it might be New York Times, CNN, et cetera. And so we don't know what we're going to get. And a lot of these requests can be very, very large. And so we don't want to be like throttling users' data who aren't sort of opting into this to some degree. And I think, you know, background fetch is a good use case for that, where, where users who are using background fetch understand that that's going to use a little bit more battery and data than it would normally. That's the thing too, is you can also optimize it a little bit. So I believe in the, in the news app, it's checking to see if the user's on Wi-Fi or if they're on their cellular connection. And if they're on Wi-Fi, it'll do like a, a kind of like a full caching of the page. And so it'll download the images and like try to load other assets and things like that. But if they're on cellular, it'll kind of just cache like the base HTML. And um, I'm not sure, pro I think probably like the CSS files and JavaScript and stuff like that. Is that right, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. So on Wi-Fi, we wait for the DOM state to be complete and on cell, as soon as we hear that the web view is finished loading, we say we're done. So we don't care if the DOM is complete or interactive or whatever. We're just, you know, once we get like notified of success, we're like, all right, that's good enough for us. So we hopefully, you know, won't be getting, I think in most cases, large images and stuff. And additionally, we found uh, we had to also do some like time-based backing off. So we, you know, for instance, I think it's like four hours we cap ourselves to. So we don't make these requests more than every four hours. And I think we, with background fetch, you kind of don't know when you're going to get called. So we found we were getting called a bit more than we really thought we would be. And so that was kind of necessary when it was clear that we were using a lot of battery and data more than we kind of expected. So moving on a little bit from the implementation and coding stuff, I'm curious, how did this project come to be? Was it meant to be an open source library? I think that was probably, I think the reason it's open source is probably, you know, essentially Kevin's idea and, and mostly his doing. I mean, Kevin, you, you know, kind of brought this from a private repo to open source. Yeah, so Dave did pretty much all, all the initial development for the most part. I mean, I think there's definitely others uh, here and there, but I know Dave did the, the vast majority of the initial development. And then uh, we've been wanting to contribute to the open source 
community for quite a while and this seemed like a good candidate. And so I kind of went through and just like tidied up some of the documentation, added a little bit here and there, like where it seemed like maybe there could be, we could expand a little bit more on things and got the repo ready and like got it set up for Carthage and CocoaPods and um, updated the readme and kind of just got it like ready for a an open release like how I would like to see a library released ideally so I hope that the readme and example project and stuff the example project was not there to begin with but have since added an example project which is always nice and yeah and I mean our goal is like we really don't want to just contribute something like throw it out there and then ignore it which um, I mean, I think happens sometimes and uh, it's kind of a shame because you go and use a library and like there's this awesome library and then you go and realize, oh, it hasn't been committed to in two years and there's like 15 pull requests open and like 300 issues. And um, so we're really trying to stay on top of that stuff also. So what was it like releasing this into the open source world? I mean, I think it was pretty awesome. It was fairly well received. I mean, I think the BuzzFeed name definitely helped with that. But I mean, we got in the the iOS Dev Weekly newsletter, which was awesome. And that got us got a lot of eyeballs on there, I think. So yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty well received. I have it. It's still, I think it's still early. And there's definitely, it seems like there's been quite a bit of interest on GitHub and people checking it out. And like, I've I've had some uh, like a few small pull requests and issues and things come in, so it seems like people are checking it out and uh, hopefully implementing it in their apps. But I guess we'll see where it goes from here. It was also a little bit terrifying for me, <laughs> just because I think my assumption was, oh, when we when we make this open source, we're just going to like flatten out the history and post it in a new repo. But we actually posted it. You know, Kevin just opened up the existing repo which means, you know, everyone can go see all my, like, embarrassing old commits. And that's actually, you know, like, after seeing Swift open source that way and seeing people do really cool stuff, like visualizing the entire Git history since 2010, you know, it's a, it, it, like, kind of gave me a new appreciation for, like, offering the history of a repo when you make it open source, even if it once was private, is actually, like, you know, kind of a cool thing to do and i think if somebody wants to go see how something came to fruition and like kind of how it grew like that allows them to do that rather than just like here's this cool thing we made we went from nothing to this perfect framework (laughs) and you don't get to see the like how it was made behind the scenes kind of thing yeah for sure and i think it also gives people a pretty good idea of how we do things at buzzfeed i mean you can like see the pull requests and code review and I mean all that kind of stuff and we definitely thought about it before we released it on whether we we should keep all the history in there and got the sign off to just keep the history and I don't think I think that's a good thing yeah what makes sense to point out that no software is like an endless stream of you know perfect commits you know that's just not how it works you try things you know oh that didn't work at all and you roll things back I've got maybe a handful of commits in the in the mattress repository and things that we were, I was trying to get fixed because there was a release coming up and like, well, let's try this and it works. And looking back, like, Oh, don't touch it. This one commit. It, it's part of a process. So speak for yeah. yourself, James. I know. <laughs> Other than Andrew. Yeah. I, I think it's good that you guys released it with the full history. And actually before we started talking about this, I kind of read through the history and I think it's kind of instructive to be able to see how, how something 
evolved and developed. I'm kind of curious that this is a Swift library. I don't know if we've mentioned that at all, but the whole thing's written in Swift. And I'm curious about two things regarding that. One, have you seen that uh, affect adoption at all? Because I th- I don't, I'm not exactly sure when you released this, but it seems like at least it's been in development since uh, Swift was a lot newer than it is now. And, and then the second question is, um, will it work in an Objective-C app or does it require Swift features and, and not bridge well to Objective-C? So I don't know. Yeah, Kevin can speak more to like the adoption if maybe, I don't know if anybody's like commented like, oh, I'd love to use this, but, you know, we only use CocoaPods and we only, you know, we don't use like bang use frameworks, but I would be kind of surprised. I just, because I, I feel like, I don't know. It seems like using Swift frameworks is something people are just going to have to start getting used to for better or worse. And I think like, like in our case, we use what we do in the news app. And I think in some of our other apps is we use CocoaPods for non-dynamic frameworks and Carthage for dynamic frameworks so that we can do both. So there is a solution for that, and it does work in an Objective-C library and should be, you know, just as you know, straightforward. You just, it, it would, you know, we don't, we're not doing anything fancy there. We just use like kind of the automatic bridging stuff. Okay. But you're not, I mean, cause there are certain things in Swift that will make it, make something not usable from Objective-C. Like if you're using generics for public facing stuff or you're using structs yeah. or whatever. The API is actually really small. The only thing that you even see is the URL cache. And you just instantiate that cache and then you call a method on it. And that method takes, you know, foundation type stuff. Uh, so, you know, it takes, um, what does it take? A, like a, an NSURL and then like some completion blocks, you know, if you were in Objective-C. Cool. Kevin, have you heard anybody like mention like, oh, I wish this were in Objective-C so I could just throw it in CocoaPods easier? So, I mean, we do handle CocoaPods, but it's just like if you're already using it for non-dynamic frameworks, I know like you can't mix dynamic and non-dynamic in CocoaPods. Yeah, I think that would be probably the only the only issue. I mean, it's hard to judge like whether it's had an effect on adoption just because um, we haven't open sourced anything before. So I'm not really, I don't know, I don't really have a good idea uh, like what to expect for an adoption rate and like how people react and things like that. I think it's been pretty positive. But yeah, I mean, there was one person who opened an issue and was having problems um, bringing it in via CocoaPods, but um, I think the issue really ended up being that they were trying to build it with CocoaPods and had to have the, the use frameworks for CocoaPods, and one of the other libraries they were including in CocoaPods wouldn't build as a dynamic framework. And so that definitely can be a problem. I don't think it's really necessarily a problem with Mattress, but uh, it's something that something might something that people might run into. But yeah, I mean, otherwise, like it should work fine. And I think that, I think what Dave mentioned is the using um, Carthage for dynamic frameworks. And we already had CocoaPods and a lot of the apps um, for other stuff. And so kind of using CocoaPods for the legacy stuff and then using Carthage for the new dynamic frameworks has, has worked pretty well for us. Yeah, I think um, as, as far as like it being in Swift and like why we would do that, this was kind of, this is really part of, you know, because we've actually been working on this for a while now. It was kind of part of our push into Swift um, at BuzzFeed where, you know, we decided we want to be writing new stuff in Swift. So any like new discrete units, we should do so. And so this was like a good use case for that. As far as like if it was worth it, 
I think because mattress is like almost entirely subclasses of foundation and UI kit objects, it's really not leveraging any of the strengths of Swift. So you're not getting like the benefits of like good type safety and stuff. So it's, it's mostly just, I mean, I don't think that makes it any worse off either than Objective-C. It's just, you know, I didn't definitely didn't run into problems writing it where it would have been easier in Objective-C, but it's just, yeah, it just makes it a dynamic framework, which could be a turnoff for some, but I expect most people to be like kind of hitting on solutions now where they're able to incorporate both Objective-C and dynamic Swift frameworks into their apps. Yeah, I, I love dynamic frameworks. I'm mostly a Mac developer, more more so than an iOS developer, and we've had frameworks forever, and so... I've just been happy that they came to iOS, but I probably should have worded my question differently because I didn't necessarily mean negative impacts on adoption, just an impact one way or another. Like I, I know that CocoaPods has their new, well, it's relatively new, but you can go you can go check the sort of like the stats for a pod and, and they, they have a quality rating. That's just sort of a number between, I think, like zero and 100 that's supposed to be an idea of the quality of a, of a particular library. And they actually give points for having your pod written in Swift, so... They consider that a good thing. As oh, if, that's kind of interesting. As if it's, uh, I, I think, you know, I mean, Swift is the future is sort of the idea. So I, I sort of expected that maybe some people were, were you know, eager eager to use it because it's in Swift and it's, you know, modern and new. And I haven't really heard too much on that one way or the other, but I definitely feel like Apple is, is for sure pushing everyone towards doing more and more Swift. So, I mean, it, it kind of seems silly to, I mean, at least to me, to a degree, to like, if you're like creating something new, like from a brand new fresh slate to do it in Objective-C. Like it seems to me like it just makes more sense to write it in Swift or else you're just kind of giving yourself more work down the road. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, is there anything else about Mattress or the, or the you know, having this open source library, anything that you guys would like to talk talk about before we wrap up? I think honestly, like not, not just the like hype people up on mattress but like if you're loading web views in your app i urge you to like give this a shot because this i think mattress is a win for your users and it's it's open source now so we want people using it and contributing you know like we're not going to be kind of the maintainers that are like oh we're going to you know ignore your pull requests it's it, we we really want people to like contribute to make this better both you know because obviously like any improvements we get to take advantage of but also it's just i think the reality is like a lot of apps use web views and a lot of apps will you know use them for in different ways but i think most of them are probably going to benefit from having that stuff having the content they're loading available offline or also just for speeding it up so yeah if you you're using it give mattress a shot and you know we'd love to hear from you if you are using it oh i I just thought of another question so where did the name mattress come from that's kevin (laughs) so we've started kind of a theme on names for libraries and frameworks and the general theme is is uh housewares and i don't know things you'd find in a kitchen in the house and so mattress kind of just fit in with that i think the original idea was it was a cache and like some people hide their cash under their mattress. And so that's where the name came from. And uh, I don't remember if this was the first one in that line of, uh, in that line of names, but yeah, we've got, we've got a whole bunch of internal libraries and frameworks all kind of in that vein now. Yeah. I think mattress was the one that kicked off the housewares theme. I think it just, it started with mattress cause you know, you put your cash under the mattress and then something else was also kind of housewares themed and it was like, Oh, it's kind of a thing. 
So Mattress is a pretty cool piece of software. Are there any other projects in the pipeline? Yeah, what's next, Kevin? <laughs> Anything we can that we think is coming out next? Not totally sure yet. Uh, we have some things that we're working on, and there's some potential things. We're definitely planning on releasing more, more in the future, but, but not totally positive on what the next one will be. Yeah, I've got some that I'm working on now that we're using internally that I would love to make open source. Some, like one I'm working on in particular is geared toward alleviating design issues, you know, things like the fact that UI label doesn't offer line height, you know, like there's, there's a lot that goes into simple, you know, you get a, you get a design spec from a designer and making that is like much harder than it should be. So I'm working on something right now to alleviate that a lot of the work, which has been done on the news app. And so it's kind of just providing that. And I'd, I'd love to find a way to kind of make that a framework that's like available for wider consumption and use. Yeah, I think that's definitely might be one of the things in the near term future. BuzzFeed on the website just released Solid, which is a CSS style uh, framework. And so, yeah, I mean, this does kind of a similar, the thing that Dave has been working on does kind of a similar thing on the iOS side. So there's definitely a possibility we might kind of release that too as a kind of a companion to what they've been releasing on the website. Uh, very cool. Let's get to the picks. Alando, what do you have for us? I have one pick this week, and it is tangentially related. There's an app that we've been using at work on our projects to manage sort of our day-to-day stand-up communications between the team. And one of the things that uh, happened is they uh, they had trouble with discovery because of naming. And so they actually wrote a blog post uh, that the app was called Flock, and now they've renamed it to Gel. So they did a uh, a nice little blog post about why and how what the cost of having the the wrong name was for them. And I'm actually encountering that on another project I'm working on too, is trying to come up with the right name and getting the right domain and everything like that. So that is my pick this week. Andrew, what do you have for us? My first pick is an app called Patterns, and it's a Mac app for working with regular expressions. And it's actually a really simple tool. Um, it lets you type in a regular expression shows you you can put in some search text and it will sort of live while you're typing the regular expression show you matches um, it also supports doing uh, replacement so and that's also live so I use it as a way to do like search and replace stuff text manipulation because I'm not very good at regular expressions and it's really helpful to me to be able to see what I'm doing while I'm doing it so that I can keep making mistakes and iterating until it actually works uh, and it has a little cheat sheet with sort of all the different parts of regular expressions. But then um, another cool thing it does is you can choose a language, a programming language, including Objective-C, and hit copy code, and it will it will copy a little snippet of code that does the regular expression in that language. So that's, that's pretty fun. And, and my next pick is another app by the same guy that I think I've picked before, but I just love it. It's called Code Runner. Um, now in version two, and this is like a really simple little app that hides a lot of complexity. So it, it just knows how to run code in a whole bunch of different languages. Uh, you hit command N, you get a empty file, you choose what language you want, and then start writing code, and you can hit run, and it will compile and run it. And it has built-in compilers for a bunch of different languages. Um, it's got syntax highlighting and code completion and stuff. So it's uh, pretty useful for you know playing around with a new language you're trying to learn, writing a little quick snippet of code that you want to test out. I use that a lot. And then my last pick is somewhat self-serving, but I, I mentioned it a little at the beginning that we launched a new app today at Mixed in Key, and we did, and it's called Odyssey, O-D-E-S-I. And uh, I'm really excited about this. We've been working on it for about a year and a half. It's a 
music composition app that helps you get started on compositions, uh, music compositions. It helps you write chord progressions and bass lines and rhythms. And um, we've done some pretty cool, fun stuff with it. I, I worked on the Mac app, which has a pretty full-featured audio engine. And um, this is the app that drove a lot of the improvements in MIK MIDI, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. So that's Odyssey by Mixed in Key. And those are my picks. Cool. Charles, do you have any picks? I have a crying baby. Does that count? Earplugs. <laughs> so a couple of things that I've just kind of been thinking about lately. Hang on, let me pick her up. So last week on the show, we had the baby eating quietly. Yeah, no. yeah. Not the case this week. <laughs> we have the crappy baby. Yeah, the show is right when my wife has to go pick up my kids from school. And so uh, since the baby is so new, I kind of have her for this week and next week probably while she goes to pick up kids for school. And look at that. She calmed down when she heard me talking. So anyway, there are a couple of things that I've just kind of been thinking about lately. And I I don't do these deep thought ones very often, but there are a couple of things that have gone on that have made me think. The first one is just uh, spending time with family. Uh, I'm going to pick that. Uh, My dad went in for open heart surgery yesterday. He's fine. He's in the ICU now. But it's a common enough operation that, you know, you assume that everything's going to work out okay. But at the same time, you recognize that they are going to open his chest and stop his heart so they can work on his heart. And that's kind of scary. So, you know, just recognizing that there are things that are often more important than code that you need to dedicate your time and your life to. And so uh, I'm going to pick that. The other thing that I'm going to pick, and that's something that I've done over the last couple of days, is clean my office. Uh, and, And I found that just having an orderly or semi orderly space to work in just takes a whole load off of my mind. And so I'm going to pick that as well. So two meta picks, nothing that you can link to. But uh, anyway, really liking those. All right, thanks. So I've got two picks, and they're just a couple of blog posts that were helpful to me when I was doing a little hacking on mattress. So if you're interested in hacking on mattress or doing any, any stuff with NSERL cache or NSERL protocol, these are some good posts. One, almost obligatory NS Hipster article. Yeah. <laughs> and there's another one that I found. It's not just esoteric stuff explaining it. Uh, this has a practical application. Let's say you have an app and you want to replace all the images with pictures of David Hasselhoff. Well, this this uh, this post by Objective Toast will uh, tell you how to do that. So there you go. I'm just putting that out there. So David, uh, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, I'm just going to go with Swift.org because I'm excited that Swift is open source now. And I'm looking forward to... You know, like how Swift is going to grow now and being able to like kind of follow along with what's happening in the future and see things like, you know, the package manager they're working on and stuff. And, you know, obviously I would also love to see if, you know, Xcode got open source so we could put some pull requests into that to fix some bugs. But we'll take what we can get and having Swift open source, I think we'll, it'll be nice to kind of squash some bugs. And then the other one I already posted, the uh, twitter.com slash WKWebView. If you're not following WKWebView, you make sure to do so. It'll make your Twitter timeline more fun. Okay. Kevin. So, yeah, I have two picks. Neither are iOS-related. But um, one, maybe this is a website people already know about. I have no idea. But uh, the website hackaday.com. I've been really into, in my free time, I'm doing electronics and building circuits and PCB design and all kinds of stuff like that embedded. And it's a pretty awesome website where they just post a lot of projects and news and things like that kind of in that world. And yeah, it just kind of really makes it relevant by like showing cool projects that people have built. So that's one. 
And the other one is the soda Ting, which here in St. Kitts is probably the most amazing soda that you could ever have. And it's available all throughout the Caribbean. And I'm sure you can find it in the U.S. somewhere. I think it's on Amazon. But it's like a grapefruit-flavored soda, and it is awesome. So if you ever get a chance to try it, you should try it. All right, we're getting a plus one from Alondo on the Ting Soda. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a great name, too. So where, where can you get it in the States or just out? Um, out I usually just get it when I go like, get Jamaican uh, food. So I've never tried to buy it in an actual grocery store. Although I think there are a couple of markets like where I get meat patties or something. You can get them there. Again, very Jamaican-oriented. So, <laughs> Yeah, Tasty Patty is also great. I mean, I'm not in Jamaica, but they have a lot of Jamaican stuff here. Ting is, um, they actually bottle it here on the island too, I believe. So this is like local Ting, but yeah, I'm pretty sure you can buy Ting straight from Amazon. I'm not sure if it's very cost effective, but I think you can get it. It's good to know. Well, that about wraps things up. So Kevin, Dave, want to thank you on for coming on the show and everyone else. Let's get Hacking on Mattress and check it out. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. 